0: Good morning. If you would stand with me, open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11, the 11th Psalm. care for your legs this morning. I'm not going to read Ezekiel 2 and 3 while we're standing. So Psalm 11 in some ways solidifies what Ezekiel will be telling us today. Psalm chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the street to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. All right, how's everyone doing with Ezekiel so far? Feeling good? Tracking with us? Yeah, these next two Sundays, you might want to rethink that. We've got a lot to get through. We've got two chapters today, we got four chapters next week. So let's get started. So last week, we looked at Ezekiel 1. We answered the question, who is God? did a great job of walking us through that. This week, we're going to be looking at answering another question. We're essentially going to ask and answer the question, who are you? But this question isn't primarily an exercise in existential introspection. If you're going to answer the question of what something is, you're likely going to have to define it in relation to the other things that you know. Horizontally defining something like when you're hiking and you're navigating the trail and you're looking at the map and you're trying to say where am I you look for a landmark you look for something that you can pinpoint on the map to figure out where you are in relation to the things around you or In a similar way, when we look at an animal, we instantly, even subconsciously, begin comparing them to all the other animals in our database in our mind. It's a four-legged mammal, long tail, short hair, about eight inches tall. It likes to jump up on counters and always lands on its feet and says, meow. What kind of animal is it? Dog, thank you. Smart (laughs) alec. You know that it's a cat because you're comparing it to all the other cats you've ever experienced. So when you answer the question, who are you, you likely begin looking at the things you do. You start comparing them to others who do similar kinds of things. And a definition arises in your mind. Stop right now and, and try to answer. Teenagers, youth, children, who are you? Try to define yourself without comparing yourself to others and see how far you get. It's a difficult thing to do. That's not the way we tend to work. If you're going, though, I want to challenge you this morning, though, that we must be careful not to be those who compare ourselves horizontally to inconsistent things around us, to other people, to the culture, whatever that is. That would be like trying to navigate using a 100-year-old map and trying to navigate according to the trees that are on the map. Because trees die. They burn up. They grow. They change. If you're going to define yourself then, you need to be able to compare yourself to something that does not change so that you can really know who you are. You must look at the one who does not change, the one who gives you life and breath, and everything. If we were just bits of atoms floating around in the universe, then you could define yourself however you want. It wouldn't matter. You could change who you are, because it doesn't matter. But, because there is an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God who exists, that we looked at last week. The God who is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth. Because there is this one God, you don't have the freedom to define yourself however you wish. The one who created you holds you together. Your very atoms binds them together at every moment gets to define who we are. He gets to define who you are. In Israel, they had been defining themselves by their relationship to their ancestors. They defined themselves by their relationship with their neighboring countries. Their ancestors had been brought into the covenant with way through Moses. So they assumed that they were in that same covenant as well even though they didn't keep the stipulations of the covenant. They looked at their old idol-worshipping, child-sacrificing, law-breaking neighbors, and they thought, we're better than they are. They sacrificed bulls and goats. They washed their hands up to their elbows really well. They wore the right kinds of garments. They kept their beard untrimmed. but they did these things not because they were honoring God, but as a means to bypass him. If I do these few good things that are external, then I don't have to worry about the deeper sins, the inside sins, the things that others don't see. So by the time we get to Ezekiel's day and the Babylonian captivity, there was very little to distinguish the Israelites, from their wicked neighbors. Which is why they were taken to Babylon. God sent Babylon because Israel ceased to be Israel the way he intended them to be Israel. They had neglected to understand rightly who God was. And so, when he spoke, they ceased to listen. Let me say that again. Israel neglected to understand God rightly So then when he spoke to them, they ignored him. So how does God define them? As we'll see in today's passage, he defines them as wicked. This formula is just as true today as it was then. How you think about God will determine how you respond to God when he speaks. What you think about God will determine how you respond to God when He speaks. And as we'll see in our passages today, you are always responding to God in a way that defines who you are and what you're like. To use the words that Ezekiel is given by God, we define ourselves as either righteous being defined here as responding to the word of God with repentance or as wicked, responding to the word of God with disdain or inattentive disregard. So our outline today is going to be this. I'll go ahead and give it to you. You've got a large blank sheet of paper in your bulletin. Just go ahead and give yourself some room there. First one, Ezekiel's call. First point, Ezekiel's call. Second point, Ezekiel's response. Third point, Ezekiel's role. And then the fourth point, we will ask the question, what does this have to do with us? So, Ezekiel's call, Ezekiel's response, Ezekiel's role, and what does this have to do with us? So, first point. Ezekiel's call. This is going to be cover chapters 2 through chapter 3, verse 11. Now, instead of reading all this at the front end, we're going to kind of walk through the text, this first point here. So have your Bibles open to Ezekiel chapter 2 and kind of read through with me as we go. So where are we in chapter 2? We're in the same place that we ended last week. He was in the area of the Kibar Canal He has this vision of Yahweh, these whirring wheels and the cherubim, and this one who's uh, like a human being in human form, who's shining and metallic, speaking to him. But last week we didn't get into the speaking part. Now we're going to see what did God say. Ezekiel was confronted with this bright, flashy, metallic storm. Out of the midst of it comes this structure that moves quickly wherever it wants, made up of cherubim. Above the touching wings of the cherubim, there was a throne, a seat. The one sitting on it, whose human appearance was indescribable and inscrutable. This description brings up memories, doesn't it, of another metallic item that had cherubim with a seat on top of it from the Old Testament, right? The one that the Holy One of Israel sits on and he says to Moses, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The people of Israel had believed that God was bound by their borders and maybe even by the temple itself. As long as the Ark was in the temple, then that's where God was. But God had caused their defeat. They were trafficked to another land where they believed God was not existing. They were hopeless, it seemed. But when God shows up in Babylon, now in this structure, these cherubim, this throne, the one with human form, they are not bound by the Holy of Holies in the temple. But this God is free. He can move wherever he wants, the wheels face any direction they want, and he goes wherever he wants. Ezekiel does what all who come into contact with this one who is high and lifted up do. He falls flat on his face. And then he hears the voice speaking to him. So, how does God address Ezekiel here? What does he call him? He calls him son of man. His first words to Ezekiel were to address him as son of man. We've heard these words before, haven't we? Jesus addresses himself using this phrase. In the Gospels, we also see Daniel seeing one like the Son of Man. But Ezekiel here is called by this phrase, Son of Man, Bain Adam, Son of Adam, even translated. I believe here this is God distinguishing himself from Daniel here. It is to distinguish the category of the one speaking, that is God from the one being spoken to, Ezekiel. They are categorically different from one another. One is creator, the other is created. They are different. God is not coming to talk with a friend. He is coming to address his created thing, his created person. But then there's also this sense in which Ezekiel is given the role of Adam here, right? He's going to be the one who announces a new creation order. To the people, to the world. Like with Adam, God breathes his spirit into Ezekiel here. Adam was, we could in a sense say dead because he was nothing. And God breathes his spirit into the thing that he formed. And he becomes hayah, a living thing. And now here Ezekiel is fallen down before this God as though dead. And the spirit enters him, lifts him up on his feet. Gives him wife. God commands him to stand, but notice that the Spirit is given and empowers Ezekiel to obey, because he could not stand. But what does God say to Ezekiel here? He commissions him, sending him to speak to the house of Israel. How does God define Israel in this passage? Look down, he says it about ten times, he calls them rebels. They're rebellious house. They are in rebellion against God. Well, what have they done to rebel? Chapter two, verse three. There we see, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn, God says. So, what is Ezekiel? What is he supposed to say to these rebels? Well, we see next, thus says the Lord God, is what he's supposed to say. It's repeated multiple times here at the beginning. It's repeated 119 times in the book as a whole. Now here we're not given the content of what he's supposed to say, but God binds him to say, the thing that you are going to say from now on is thus says the Lord. You no longer have freedom to speak of your own accord. Ezekiel. There. Hearing this, being spoken to them, the rest of the book, Ezekiel will say, thus says the Lord, 119 times, each time followed by specific words given by God. Ezekiel was going to be God's mouthpiece to the people. How does God say that the people are going to respond when Ezekiel comes to them? "Thus says the Lord. Well, Ezekiel's told multiple times that he's to speak God's words to the people whether or not they obey. So in ver- uh, verse I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 2, whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Or read chapter 2, verse 7, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. Or chapter 3, verse 7, but the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Ezekiel, you're not going to speak your own words. You're going to speak my words. So when they reject you, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Chapter 3, verse 11. Go to the exiles, your people, and speak to them, and say to them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. That's how Israel is going to respond. Why will they respond in this way? Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Remember, they call them rebels. God planned to keep their hard heart by making hard to Made your face as hard as their face, your forehead as hard as their foreheads, like emory hardened plants. Forehead. fear them not nor be dismayed at their looks because he's going to get some looks because God's going to have him doing some things that if you saw like walking down the street today you'd be like ooh, let's walk on the other side of the road Yet you turn and look and you stare because it's odd and that's what Ezekiel was going to be doing he's getting their attention to deliver the word of the Lord to them this is even bound up in Ezekiel's name in Hebrew means God strengthens or God hardens. God has purposed Ezekiel into a sledgehammer made of hardened metal to break off the deformed rust and ruin of the covenantal house of Israel. God is going to use him that way. So, how will Ezekiel keep from turning rebellious like the others? What's keeping Ezekiel from going the way of the rest of Israel? Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. We've already read that the message Ezekiel is supposed to give the rebellious people of Israel is, thus says the Lord. And now, God is giving Israel the content, or giving Ezekiel the content of the message he is to give. He's giving him his words, the very words that he's supposed to speak. And he's eating it, and it's going down, and it, it should taste bad, but it tastes good. The scroll spoke bad things for Israel, words of lamentation, of mourning. Was to fill himself up with these words. But unexpectedly, they did not taste mournful or woeful. They weren't foul. Instead, they were sweet like honey. Why? Because they were right words, they were just words. God was the just judge, and he had condemned the people of Israel because of their actions. But notice what Ezekiel is to do first with these words. In verse 10 of chapter 3. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I speak to you receive in your heart and hear with your ears. Ezekiel first had to receive them. He had to hear them. Ezekiel cannot just be the messenger bringing God's words to the people. No, he must first be a recipient of them. A pin in that. We'll come back to that towards the end. So, next. Next point. We see Ezekiel's response. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. So all of that that we just looked at was the call of Ezekiel. He was empowered by the Spirit, given strength to give holy headbutts to this recalcitrant people, and given the very words he is to deliver. I kind of feel like that should have been a Monty Python sketch. Order of the holy headbutts. So how then does Ezekiel respond to his call? Let's read verses 12 through 15 of chapter 3. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the God, the glory of the Lord from this place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of the great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Kibar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. First, then, we see the Spirit lifts them up, takes them away to another place, And as he's leaving, he's hearing worship taking place behind him. Blessed be the Lord God from this place. And he also hears this cacophony the sound of wind and earthquakes and a voice in the earthquake. It was the sound of the cherubim and the wheels that he heard back in chapter 1. As he's leaving, the Spirit's taking him away and he hears this cacophony behind him. We're told that he went in bitterness. Things already weren't going Eat strange food, hear strange languages. Actively participate as a priest, and now Unable to do the thing for 30 years. no purpose, plan he's just hanging out by the canal. Oh, God gives him purpose. But it's not the one that he wanted. He's been told he's going to work every day, but have nothing to show for it. And if you have jobs like that, you work and you toil, and you work and you toil, and says, oh, I'm going to give this project to someone else. They're going to get the credit for what you did ever happened to you. Or you work in your toil, you work in your toil, and then it gets canceled for no reason. Like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the mountain just to have it go down the other side, Ezekiel would be toiling every day and having to do it all over again the next. That could be what's making him bitter. He realizes the, the job he's been given. Or it could be that Ezekiel was lamenting the laments that he had eaten. He knows what he needs to say to the people. And it has him in dread. We're told that he was in the heat of my spirit, he says. The hand of the Lord being strong upon me. Have you ever been upset like that? Upset with a brother or a sister? Upset with a spouse or a coworker, And you just sit and stewed on it? The more you thought about it, the angrier you got. And inside you could feel heat raising up in you building in your chest? You're ready to strike out like a fire the next time they talk to you? Maybe that's what Ezekiel's feeling here. We're not really told exactly what the cause was, but regardless of the cause, this bad state that he was in stayed with him for seven days, not saying a word, just dwelling among the people. Sometimes encountering God is like that, isn't it? The prophet Jeremiah had a similar experience in Jeremiah 15, 17. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me. You had filled me with indignation. What about you? Have you ever been angry with God? For the path that he's chosen for you? you had plans for your life? But God steps in with a Babylon and disrupts your plan. Taking you away from the place you wanted to be. Taking others away from you. Taking away opportunities from you. Brought you into life that is different from the one you wanted to live. Have you too sat overwhelmed with what you've experienced at God's hand? Wondering what it all means? understand that God has a purpose for his people God's words of woe for these exiles were ultimately meant to conform them to his likeness for the good of the world they were misshapen they had been bent by sin out of the form that he had created them in but they could not see it. The mirror that they were looking at was not the mirror of the word that James refers to. Instead, they were looking at other people that were also misshapen, and they say, hey, we look like them. We must be okay. God brought in Babylon as a punishment for some, but he brought in Babylon as a trainer for others, a pedagogue. And soon we'll see the words from God were the same to all the people, whether they were righteous or whether they were wicked. The word was repent. Some, though, heard the message of God and repented, while others, when they heard the words of God, went further away from God. God was preparing his people for what he was about to do. Before we can get into the valley of dry bones in chapter 37 that we all love, we've got to see the bad news of what was going on in Israel. Apart from God's Spirit working in us, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see, breathing life into us and clothing us with new flesh of chapter 37... Until that time, we are enemies of God. We rebel against Him. You and I do this. We rebel against God on the daily. We know what is expected of us and we choose not to do it. We worship idols like Israel. We rebel like Israel. We break His law and spurn His kindness like Israel. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. We, like Israel, need to be broken down in order to be reshaped. Ezekiel is that holy hammer that God is creating. God has strengthened him, particularly for this purpose. And I would say the Word of God as a whole acts this way for us. It is constantly chipping off barnacles from us, making us more like the image of Christ that we were created to be, the true Adam. We are remodeling our house right now. Please don't come over. It's really a mess. We have in mind this great kitchen that will be big and bright with enough room for more than two people to stand in it without touching elbows. It'll be great, but before we can have that kitchen... What is there? What is there currently has to be torn out. The sixty-year-old wooden cabinets got to go. The layers of old floor got to go. The fabric-wrapped wiring—how did anyone think that was a good idea? It's got to be yanked out and new put in. And in their place, the new thing will be built. God often uses our suffering to do this for us. We are comfortable with how we are. It might not be great, but it's what we know. We know what to expect. We're used to it. We know how we need to change, or that we need to change, and we try to change here and there. But God knows that if we, what we need isn't a light paint job to make us new. We need to be demolished and rebuilt. That's because sin has affected every single part of us. Our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits. We need to be made a new creation. Ezekiel was now suffering. But out of his suffering, God was going to use him for his own glory the same as he used Job in his suffering, or Paul in his, and even Jesus. And you, God uses this, the suffering, the pain, the toil, to remake us in His image. So, next point, we'll see Ezekiel's role. What role has he been given? As Ezekiel is overwhelmed, now back at the Kibar Canal, the Lord came to him again. This time he gives Ezekiel a role to play in Israel, a, a military posting, in a sense. He was to be what is referred to here as a watchman. So let's read verses 16 through 27. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth you shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, If a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin. And his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you will have delivered your soul. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Kibar Canal, and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed on you, and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Okay, do you know what a watchman is? Modern military tactics you might refer to as overwatch. Sets up high on the tower, overlooking the battlefield, or in this case, on the edge of a city or on the edge of a military camp. They will be posted on the corners, and their sole job is to look out over the horizon and see is the enemy coming or the enemy is there? What are they doing next? And when they see it, they're to tell the people about it so that they can be warned and take action. Ezekiel was to be this warning alarm for the house of Israel. But doesn't it seem a little late? They've already been kidnapped traffic to another land. Who is it then that Ezekiel is supposed to warn the people was coming? Who is a danger to them? It's God. Ezekiel is a sentry whose job here is twofold. He is to hear from God and he's to give the words to the people. In verse 17, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. What's he to warn them about? What God says. So God here is both serving as the enemy of Israel and one giving them warning. It's an odd thing. But this is exactly what the God we discussed last week has to do. He's both just and the justifier of the ungodly. He is holy and loving. One does not take away from the other. In his holiness, he is fully loving. In his love, he is fully holy. In his mercy, he is just. 100%. We're not dividing God up. He doesn't set aside some things in order to be something else. He's the Holy One of Israel and cannot abide their sin any longer. Yet, he is also the one who has made a one-way covenant with Abraham, that he will have a remnant sitting on the throne. So God is playing roles against himself, yet we know that God is using his warnings here to save the remnant of his people. So we get into who it is that Ezekiel will warn. Ultimately, here, there are two types of people. You could call them the wicked and the righteous. It's what God calls them here. But I think those two terms blind us to what is really going on in this passage. Not that God is wrong, but we're wrong. We get used to these words. So let's reframe it a little bit and see what is being told to them. Let's refer to these two types of people instead as those who hear and ignore and those who hear and then repent. To show these two types of people, God gives examples of what will happen if Ezekiel is disobedient or obedient to his role as a watchman. First, let's look at those who ignore. In this first potential situation that he lays out, there is a person who has broken God's laws without repenting. God tells Ezekiel to warn him, but then Ezekiel refuses. This is not an actual thing. This is a potential situation God is laying out for him. He's warning Ezekiel here. God says that that type of person who hears, or I'm sorry, that type of person who sins, but Ezekiel doesn't warn, he will die. But Ezekiel will also bear a punishment. His blood I will require at your hand, God tells him. Note here that the person who does the sinning and doesn't repent is not not guilty because Ezekiel didn't warn him. He is still guilty, thus he dies. This person does die as a result of his or her own sin. But Ezekiel will bear a punishment because he did not obey the Lord in warning the person. But we see if Ezekiel does warn the wicked and they hear but ignore the word that Ezekiel's given them, Ezekiel is free and clear. But the wicked person still dies because of their sin. So if you've been ignoring God's call to you, if you hear his words to repent and believe in the good news, to Stop trusting in your own good works and to reach out to Christ who actually did good works. Do know that you have no excuses. It's not the pastor's fault for not using the right words or your Sunday school teacher's fault or your parents' fault. It's not your parents' fault for not letting you find yourself they would have been so hard on me than I would have understood. It's not your spouse's fault for not treating you just the way that you want. It's not society's fault. It's not the government's fault. Getting everything you want in life will not talk you into obeying God. If from this day forward you paid no more taxes and all of your loans were forgiven and, oh, a little too soon. Uh, <laughs> and and everything went right, someone blessed you, you won the lotto, someone gave you a million-dollar house, you got the cars you wanted, you finally got the spouse you wanted because they kicked it in the right gear, you would be no closer to obeying God because it's not about what others are doing for you or against you. It's about you. Are you obeying the Lord? Are you responding in repentance? when you don't obey the Lord. You are responsible for your own actions and your own inactions. But you, Christian, also bear a responsibility. You are not sending people to hell as a result of not sharing. They're doing plenty fine on their own in that account. By not sharing, you're sending no one to hell. They die for their own sins. But you are guilty of hearing God speak and not warning others. No one will ever be lovable enough for you to share the gospel with them. They won't be easy enough to talk to or close enough to God that you can just push them right over the edge to take the uncomfortable step to tell them of their own sin and of a new life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That work isn't easy. So, you've got the wicked man, and then you have those who repent. Those who hear and don't repent, and those who hear and do repent. Then in verse 20, we have another potential situation given to us. There is a person who has lived a life of repentance, but then, in a sense, falls off the wagon to live a life of sin. God says that he will lay a stumbling block in front of him and he will die. God says in verse 20, his righteous deeds shall not be remembered. But Ezekiel, because he did not warn the person, will bear a punishment. Note that this person won't be able to make the argument that his good deeds outweigh his bad ones. The question is, has this person repented or not? Not, has he done more good deeds than bad ones? Because his, bad, his good deeds will not be remembered, we're told. As Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty two, he who endures till the end will be saved. But then we see another scenario here, that the righteous person is warned not to sin by Ezekiel, and the person then doesn't sin as a response. This person shall live, we're told. Then we see Ezekiel's role reiterated here. We see Ezekiel being told by the Lord to go out into the valley to hear from God. And when he gets there to the wide expanse in the valley, Ezekiel is confronted once again with the same experience of God as he had before, and he does the same thing. He falls prostrate, and the Spirit again has to enter him and pick him up on his feet. What does God tell Ezekiel to do? He says, go into your house, so that you cannot go out among the people. It's odd, isn't it? We just read about his new role as watchman to warn the people. And while he's in his house, cords will be put on him. Who's putting on the cords? Is it God is it the people. I don't know. I'm just told the Cords will be put on you. God will make his tongue cling to the roof of his mouth, though. So that he can't speak, he won't be able to reprove the people until God gives him the words, thus says the Lord. It's a very pointed tool that God is going to be using with Ezekiel. And God hears, or God ends this with this well-known phrase from the mouth of Jesus. He who will hear, let him hear. He who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. I feel bad for Ezekiel here. <laughs> A lot has been written about Ezekiel's mental state. Like secular books have been written about what's going on with Ezekiel. You'll see it as we go through the book. He has to do some really strange things. But people are neglecting the fact that Ezekiel not like, hey, I'm going to go do this thing. It is God saying, Ezekiel, go do this thing. It is God who is the driver of Ezekiel's actions. Ezekiel doesn't have a mental health disorder. The people of Israel have a spiritual health disorder. And God is going to use Ezekiel to wake them up to their hard hearts through his strange actions. So final point. What's this got to do with us? We've made some application already, but let's focus in on that right now. What does it have to do with us First. Those who follow God, before taking the word to others, we must receive the words ourselves. We must be hearers of the word. You may say with James, be doers of the word, not just hearers only deceiving yourselves. And you would be right, but that was the place that Israel found themselves, isn't it? They'd been doers, but they were no longer hearers. They were doing some of the right actions, but they weren't doing it with the right intent that they were told to do them with. If you don't hear the word, you definitely can't do it. So let me encourage you then. What you heard last Sunday and what isn't going to get you through to this Sunday, and what you hear this Sunday isn't going to get you through to next Sunday. You need an infusion of the words of God to give you life, because that's what the Spirit does. You want to get the Spirit? Read the Word. That's where the Spirit is talking to you. If the Spirit is telling you things that aren't in the Word, you might need to go see Ezekiel's counselor, because that's not the way... God's working anymore. God is speaking through His Word to us. We have to have the Word in us. You need to inundate yourself with the Word. Be reading the Word. Be studying the Word. Memorize the Word. Meditate on the Word. We had a discussion in our DNA group. It's hard to find time to sit and read the Scriptures in any kind of meaningful way, isn't it? Is anyone else on that boat? Well, you got these smartphones now, and they're smart enough to read the Bible to you. Put it on play while you're driving to work. Or in my case, while you're feeding the cows and the chickens. (laughs) Then have some time to go deep. Get a verse. Study it. What does it mean? What did it mean? How does it apply today? Memorize it. Get it into your heart so that it can come out of you when the appropriate time requires it. This is especially true of the pastors and elders and the teachers among us. This is not me, like spilling dirty laundry about our elders. That's not it at all. But I do know, as a former pastor, that it can be easy to put the inundation of the word to the side so that we can preach the word have to be careful about that, guys. Be careful you're attending to the word in your own life before bringing it to the people. So that's the first application. Before taking the word to others, we must receive the words ourselves. Second, God is not your pal. Jesus isn't your good old buddy who's willing to overlook your bad habits. He is the holy God. And he demands your repentance, even while procuring your forgiveness on the cross. You are to pursue, pursue holiness through the Spirit he provides you. Listen to me. Because you're a Christian, does not give you an excuse to sin. Just Be abundantly clear there. If you know you're sinning, you must repent. How do you know you're sinning? It's not because your neighbor told you that once that you heard that you were supposed to do this thing that his grandma told him about. That's, when we live in Turkey, that's the way the law worked there. It's not what does the, the, their holy book say. It's, uh, well, we were told this once because they don't read the language. They don't read Arabic. That's the way a lot of Christians here live. Well, I was told that you're not supposed to do it. Does the scripture say it? So you, once again, Be in the scripture. Inundate yourself with the scripture. And when you see something that you are not doing, do it. When you're doing something that you see you're not supposed to be doing, stop doing it. He who endures till the end will be saved. Next point we are all dependent on the word from God. God uses his prophets like hardened chisels to remove the crusty, sinful parts from us. Let the word through these prophets, what we have in the Old and the New Testaments, do its work then. Hear the word, then repent. Hear the word, then repent. Hear the word, then repent. It's not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing. Every time you hear the word, you repent. Every time you hear the word preached, every time you read the word, when you hear it in a song, you repent. Because you know there's something there. And if you feel like you don't need to repent, you probably need to go deeper. That is the life of a Christian. Fourth application. If you are a Christian, God has called you to be a watchman. It's a little bit out of the scope of what he was telling Ezekiel here, but it is the truth. Go ye therefore, baptizing unto all nations. You are to be a watchman. We are all given a responsibility to share God's word with people. Some are further given the role to be that of an overseer, the New Testament word for a watchman. Or maybe you've been given the role of a parent to oversee your house. But just because you haven't been named in the role of an overseer, an elder, or a pastor doesn't mean that you shouldn't be exercising those same gifts of hearing the word and then giving the word. Hearing the word and giving the word. Final application. When you suffer, suffer well. I don't have all of the answers and the wise of what God has been doing in your lives. I don't have them for my own life. I can see some glimpses sometimes. But I do know that based on God's promises that he is with us when we suffer. We're even told he puts us in difficult situations for our good. A thorn was given me in the flesh. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you ever feel gifted with thorns like Paul was? Can you look at the suffering in your life and call it a gift? We need to use the thorns for their intended purpose. We need to lean into Christ in those times because his grace, grace is sufficient. We're told. So as we wrap up, think again about how you'd answer the question, who are you? Remember that our holy God has spoken his word through prophets and apostles to us. We are in a world that is not our home. Let us make it our aim then to be those who hear the word and respond with repentance, trusting in the ultimate Son of Man to provide us with what we need to be remade in His image. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us your word, for giving us words of warning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to repent. Help us to do that now as we have heard your word and as we'll continue on before the supper. Give us hearts to draw closer to you. In your name we ask, Jesus. Amen.